two weeks, guys. This week, next week, we will be wrapping up our study, our 59-week study of the book of Mark. So I know you anticipate that. Uh, we are in chapter 15, verses 33 through 39 today. So turn there, and we'll get going with that text in just a moment. But last week, our sermon text was Mark 15, 16 through 32, which is Mark's record of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And for those of you who were here, I tried to revive in you an astonishment for the events that took place when Jesus was hung on a cross. And the reason I wanted to see your heart and to see your mind stirred is because now we are 2,000 years removed from Jesus' death. And perhaps you're 10 years or 20 years or, or 50 years removed from hearing the crucifixion story for the first time. And so with that, we so often refer to the cross or, or reference the cross, kind of forgetting just how remarkable the event truly was. The wonder and the awe, the pain, the, the epic nature of the whole scene has a way of fading from view a little bit. And as we've studied Mark, we've tried to tune into the fact that the cross of Jesus Christ is the realization of thousands of years of prophecy. And it is the awesome fulfillment of dozens and dozens of types and shadows in the Old Testament accounts. It is the the pinnacle of three years of teaching and ministry by the Lord Jesus. And it is the, the culmination of God's plan to fully and finally redeem a people for himself through the blood of his own son. God's triunity paid us a visit in the person of Jesus Christ. And instead of God's son coming to earth in glory and in honor and in splendor and in majesty, he came in meekness and in relative poverty And the core of his mission was to suffer and to die. And that, when you you really ponder that, that is simply astounding. That the God of the universe came to reveal to us exactly what he is like, and in so doing, he suffered and he died for us. And if you want to distinguish Christianity from all other world religions, consider this. All other religions say, do this, and do this, and this, and this, and this, and that's how you get to God. Here's the list, do your best, and that's how you reach God. Christianity says, God came and did this one sacrificial act so so that he could get to you. Not you getting to him, so that he could get to you, which means something very, very important. Christianity is not man reaching for God. It's not man striving to get to, to get to God. Christianity is God stooping down to reach us. God doing the work on our behalf and in our place. And it's that truth that makes all the difference. Makes all the difference. So, as a continuation of last week's message, a part two. Let's close out the crucifixion scene. This is the most dramatic six hours in history. Verses 33 through 39 of chapter 15. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mark writes, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. 
And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. This is God's word. Four points this morning, all centered on the centurion's declaration there in verse 39. The Son of God forsaken by God, the Son of God fulfilling his suffering, the Son of God finishing his work, and the Son of God finally confessed. The Son of God forsaken by God. Let's start there. The first thing this passage tells us is the time. It's noon. The sixth hour refers to the middle of the day. The day started at 6 a.m., so that's zero hour. Jesus was nailed to the cross at the third hour, so that's 9 a.m., and now we've come to the sixth hour, 12 o'clock. And as you well know, 12 p.m. is when the sun is highest in the sky. So we are well beyond the shadows of early morning. We're nowhere near the twilight of early evening. This is high noon. And this needs to be pointed out because, because something cosmic is described at the end of verse 33. It says, darkness covered the whole land. So it's the brightest part of the day and the whole land is dark. And to that, some would say, well, it must have been an an eclipse of some sort. No, because the Passover feast coincided with a full moon, and you don't get eclipses when there's a full moon. Others would say, well, it must have been, you know, one of those massive dust storms. You know, our troops in the the Middle East have given us reports of these massive dust clouds where there's there's literally zero visibility. They're so dense, they, they actually, they're visible from space. But those typically happen in the fall and in the winter, Passover would have coincided with the rainy season, so not very likely that a dust storm of that magnitude would have occurred during the wettest time of year. So it's not either of those phenomenon. The word for land here at the, at the end of verse 33 is actually the word for the entire earth. So the plain reading of this text is that the entire earth went dark. And I don't know if that means that every spot on the planet was dark. Not sure Mark could even know that. But I think the use of that word does underscore the fact that there was extreme, widespread darkness. It was the kind of darkness that cannot be explained scientifically, not through meteorology or astronomy or any of those instrumentations. This is best explained as supernatural darkness. This darkness that descended is a supernatural sign of God's judgment upon sin. That's what this darkness is, which is perfectly consistent with how the Bible speaks of God's judgment. Think about the ten plagues God brought against Egypt. You remember that, right? In order to free the Israelites from slavery, God brought ten plagues of judgment against the Egyptians. And the plague he sent to them that immediately preceded the first Passover was the plague of darkness. 
It was a three-day period of darkness followed by the killing of the firstborn sons. So darkness was a sign of God's judgment before the first Passover, and now it's a sign of God's judgment in this last Passover before the death of God's one and only son. There's also the prophet Amos. Amos, in his Old Testament prophecy concerning the coming day of the Lord, he said this, and, and, and it's known that this would be a day, uh, a time of God's judgment against sin. Amos wrote these words in Amos chapter 8. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I like how Derek Thomas, he's pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi, he says this, Was this an eclipse? No, not for three hours. God did this. The hand of God did this. It was a miracle as though God placed his hand over the sun and said, you will not shine on my sun. God did that to signal that the angel of death is abroad visiting the sins of God's people and bringing judgment to bear, passing over his people and landing, as it were, on the Passover lamb whose blood is now shed and trickling down his face and hands and feet and dropping to the ground below. Christ, our Passover, is slain for us. As the hymn writer once wrote, well, might the sun in darkness hide and shut its glories in, and God the mighty maker died for his own creature's sin. Thirty-three years or so earlier, when Jesus was born into the world, there had been brightness and music at midnight. Now, when he is taken out of the world, there is darkness and there is madness at the noonday. And you can see as this dark as this darkness lifts, so, so at the ninth hour, the text says, at 3 p.m., when the Passover lambs were being slain in the temple, we hear a cry from Jesus. He cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lamas sambachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the one and only time in the New Testament that Jesus ever referred to God in any other way than Father. Every other time he spoke to God, he called him father. But here, his father's absence is so profound that he has to cry out with another name. The darkness fell. The judgment and wrath and condemnation has crushed the Lord Jesus. He has been utterly forsaken, and so he cries out. And what's interesting in Scripture, a double expression like we we read here to say, my God, my God, that is actually a way to, to identify the person you're addressing with great affection. We see this throughout God's Word. For example, the angel says in Genesis 22, Abraham, Abraham, says his name twice. In Exodus, God says in chapter 3, Moses, Moses. David in 2 Samuel 18 and 19, crying out to his son, Absalom, Absalom, Luke in, or excuse me, Jesus in Luke 10, 41 says, Martha, Martha. Jesus, again, in Luke 22, says, Simon, Simon, when he's looking to reinstate him to ministry. When he appears to Saul on the road to Damascus, Damascus, Acts chapter 9, Saul, Saul, Jesus cries out. And in Luke 13, when he looks at the city, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And now here, my God, My God, this is divine affection being put on display, which means Jesus is not angry with God in this moment. 
He's not frustrated with God because he feels left alone. He's not mad at God. Jesus is longing for God with the deep affection in his heart that he has for him. Yet in his anguish, he knows that he is utterly forsaken. He knows he's separated from him. The Father and the Son who had loved each other from all eternity, a love that was infinitely long and absolutely perfect, Jesus has lost that love. He'd been cut off. Now, if after the service one of you came up to me and said, Jay, I'm done with you. I never want to see you or talk with you again. That would be devastating to me because I'm your pastor and I I love you and, and that would hurt. But if my wife came up to me and said those same words, I wouldn't just be devastated, right? I would, be, I would be much, much worse. Why? Because the longer the love, the deeper the love, the richer the love, the greater the torment of its loss. And folks, there is no longer, deeper, richer love than what existed between the Father and the Son. So the extent of the lost is beyond any of our comprehension. We think about the Godhead and the triune relationship, the eternal fellowship of love and glory and exalting. We think about that relationship being severed. That is beyond our comprehension. It's as Luther once said, God forsaking God, who can understand? And ultimately, the answer to the question that Jesus poses in the text The answer to, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The answer to that question is for me, for you, for for us. That's why Jesus was forsaken. Jesus was forsaken by God so that we would never have to be. The judgment that should have fallen on us as sinners fell on him. Why was he forsaken? Because he was saving you and I. Why was he saving in you and I? Because he loves you and I. Brings us to our second point. The Son of God fulfills his suffering. Here we see the bystanders. They assume that Jesus is calling out for Elijah. Their traditions taught that Elijah would come and rescue the righteous from their suffering. In fact, Jewish society didn't even have a category for righteous people who suffered. If you suffered in their worldview, it was because of sin. Either you or or possibly one of your parents had sinned. People suffered because of their sin. That was their thinking. There were no two ways about it. So this is the primary question in the book of Job. If you remember the book of Job and what happened to him, it's the Bible's oldest book. Job's fundamental question in that text is, why do the innocent suffer? And the thinking of the bystanders in this moment was, if, if Jesus was truly righteous, then Elijah would come and alleviate his suffering and would rescue him, take him off the cross, and just as Elijah ascended in to heaven without dying, Jesus would go there also. Plus, if he truly was the Messiah, the true king of Israel who came to establish God's kingdom, then Elijah, in their minds, would precede his coming. You had to have Elijah first so that then you could have the Messiah. They didn't have a category for the fact that John the Baptist had come in the spirit and the power 
of Elijah. So they're still waiting on Elijah. If this guy is really the Messiah, then, Messiah, then, then Elijah's going to show up. And in their waiting, they give Jesus a drink of a vinegar mixture. And this vinegar mixture was not a painkiller like the drink that had been offered to him before. This was not to deaden his senses. This mixture would actually, it would actually heighten Jesus' senses. This is akin to, to smelling salts or something like that. And we learned from another gospel writer that he took a sip of that mixture. And what that means is that Jesus took that sip and it did not deaden the pain. Actually, it awoke him more fully to the pain. It brought his senses alive. All that to say, Jesus Christ is fully suffering. He won't be removed. He won't be brought down. Elijah will not come. He will fully suffer, which in chapter 8, right after Peter declared him to be the Christ. Remember, Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. Right after that, Jesus told his disciples that he was going to suffer many things. It's the first clue he gives them that he's headed to the cross. It's not really even a clue. It's just an explicit statement. I am going to suffer and die. And that news prompted a response from Peter. Do you remember? Peter said, never, never will that happen. Peter's thinking was, you're the Messiah. You won't suffer. But that's exactly what Jesus came to do, which is why Jesus goes on to rebuke Peter. He actually calls Peter satanic because Jesus knows that that core to fulfilling his mission is suffering. And anyone calling him away from suffering was not of God, but of the devil. Jesus had to suffer. So please, just as, a, just as a practical piece of advice today, don't ever ask why bad things happen to good people. Don't ask that question. Because right here, right here we have, we have the absolute worst thing happening to the only truly good person. The cross of Jesus Christ. The righteous are not exempt from suffering, and we know that because Jesus Christ suffered terribly. And those that follow him, the New Testament tells us, we partner in his suffering. We take up his cross as well. Let's jump to the third idea in the text, verses 37 and 38. The Son of God finishes his work. And Jesus uttered a loud cry. What was his cry? The other gospel writers tell us that he said a few different things. But I think the statement primarily associated with this loud cry is tetelestai. It's a word that translates, it is finished. Jesus came and finished the work of, uh, that God had given him to do. He lived the perfect life. He marched resolutely to his death, and he drank fully the white-hot cup of God's wrath in our place and says at the end of it all, it is finished. The verb tense associated with this cry of it is finished, it points to an ongoing reality. So when he cried out, when he cried out it is finished, he was actually saying it has been and forever will be finished. We can't top that, guys. Salvation comes to us from Jesus 
finished work on the cross. If any of us suppose that we can add to his work, maybe make his work a little bit better, maybe somehow earn a part of our salvation, sort of meet God halfway, then we actually insult the work that Jesus did. We actually subtract from it. Think about that. Salvation comes from trusting in Jesus' finished work and nothing else. Nothing else. Are you trusting in that work alone? If you are, you're believing the gospel. But if you think it's a little bit of him and a little bit of you and you kind of meet God halfway, and God really likes you for your morality or God really likes you for your spiritual acumen or that, that really you were intelligent enough or spiritual enough to sort of, sort of see your need and clean yourself up and then go to God and put your faith in him knowing that that's really what it takes to put you over the top. You don't really believe the gospel. You don't even understand the gospel because here we learn that it is finished. It was accomplished in full by Jesus. To add to it is to distract from it. You see that? We don't accomplish it ourselves. He accomplished it for us. And if you're tired of doing and doing and doing, thinking that it depends upon you, lay your deadly doing down and look to Christ alone and trust in Him for your salvation. And if you're trusting in Him alone, then you can sing as we did this morning in the first service, lifted up was He to die, it is finished was His cry, now in heaven exalted high, hallelujah, What a Savior. What a Savior. And after this loud cry, the text says that he breathed his last. And so what happens next is is stunning. Verse 38, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. About a dozen or so curtains in the temple, but this torn curtain was the most important curtain because it separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. It's it's separated the sanctified, holy dwelling place of God from the rest of the temple. The Holy of Holies was part of the temple that no one could get into but the high priest. He only went in once a year. He went in to sprinkle the blood of the Lamb on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. He did this to make atonement for the sins of a nation on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. So we have this thick curtain. It was a piece of fabric almost as thick as a wall, several inches thick. And what it symbolized was was sinners' separation from God. Again, God God was said to reside in the Holy of Holies. His Shekinah glory, His light was there. And sinners, because of their sin, they had no real access to God. Only the high priest is allowed into the presence of God to sprinkle that blood sacrifice on the mercy seat. That's the old covenant. That's the system. That's the way to pacify God and His wrath. Only by the blood sacrifice could the priests survive even God's glorious presence in the Holy of Holies. But at the moment Jesus died, the new covenant of salvation, it was ratified. He paid in full the punishment, the just penalty for all who would ever believe. And officially now at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on that Friday, the old covenant is abolished. The temple is nullified. The priesthood is voided. And all sacrifices become pointless because the only true and saving sacrifice has been offered. That one, that that one who John the Baptist had said, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He had been slain and he just took away the sin of the world. And And when the veil was split from top to bottom, 
that could not have been done by man. It had to have been done by God. It was God's exclamation point on the death of his son. And what it said was, the way into the presence of God, the way into my presence, the way to me, to relationship with me, it is now wide open. Access has been made. All may enter. Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female, doesn't matter. You can come to me because the the veil has been torn. So what does the death of the Lord Jesus accomplish? Well, it opens the way. It obliterates the symbols and the ceremonies, and it brings the reality of salvation to everyone who chooses to enter in. God's holy, glorious presence, it is available to us. The way has been opened by the death of Christ. It's the end of the priesthood. It's the end of the Levitical code. It's the end of the sacrificial system. It's the end of the temple. It's the end of the Holy of Holies and the holy place and all that instrumentation. The whole system at this moment is now null and void and overdone. Hebrews 10.19 explains this fully. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... By the new and living way that He opened up for us through the curtain. That is, through His flesh. As His his flesh was torn, just like this curtain was torn, that gives us the way to God. Verse 21, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. All kinds of Levitical language wrapped up in the book of Hebrews, but it's all there. What Jesus has just accomplished is all there. The veil has been torn. The way to God is made clear. At precisely the moment, at precisely the moment of Jesus' last breath, again, three o'clock in the afternoon, the ninth hour, when the priest had begun to slaughter tens of thousands of Passover lambs so that the people could, could that night eat the Passover meal, at that hour, the true Passover lamb himself had been slain by God, rendering all that other activity pointless. Guilty, vile, and lost were we. Spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Which gets us to the final point this morning. The Son of God finally confessed. A Roman centurion was the commander of a hundred men. The centurion mentioned in verse 39 would have had about four soldiers under his charge for this particular crucifixion. And this is a man who had seen dozens and dozens and dozens of crucifixions. This was not a unique experience to see a man die this way. This is just a part of this guy's job. If someone in the empire caused trouble, if they, if they committed the right crime, if they proved to be a threat, they would be crucified. When the Romans, when they had defeated Spartacus and his men, they crucified all 6,000 of them on the Appian Way, the main road leading into Rome. And so for 120 miles on both sides of the road, you had crosses. You had crucified soldiers. The cross, it was brutal, it was bloody, but it's what Roman soldiers did. Maybe not as monotonous as you and I checking our email, but close for them. It's just part of their duty. And this centurion in charge of Jesus' crucifixion, he had seen everything that day. The flogging, the beating, the spitting, the mock worship, the the twisting of the crown of thorns. 
He was the one who ordered Simon the Cyrene to carry Jesus' crossbeam. He had supervised as Jesus was nailed to it through his menial nerves, probably helped raise him to that elevated position. He had seen the midday darkness. He'd witnessed all seven sayings that Jesus uttered from the cross. He heard the insults. He saw that offering of sour wine. He ordered the spear eventually to his side. All of that. Saw all of it. And so that's why the text says it this way. It says it was the way he died. It was the way that Jesus died. It was the fact that when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, and in his final breath it was as though Jesus took a hold of death and pronounced his victory and triumph over it, the centurion had never seen anything like that before. It caused him then to confess, surely this was the Son of God. This is a man, he had never seen Christ raise the dead. He had never heard Christ preach. He had never seen Jesus walk on the waters of Galilee or calm a storm. He hadn't seen the multitude fed with, with, with five loaves and two fish that were multiplied over and over and over again. All he had seen was this bloodied corpse and the way that he died. And his conclusion from those six hours was truly This is the Son of God. In all the splendors of Rome, in all the glory that he had witnessed on the great days of celebration and victory as the parades entered into that city, all the times he had proclaimed that the emperor, Tiberius Caesar, that he himself was the Son of God, all that is swallowed up and voided with this confession. Truly, this was the Son of God. Chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Mark the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's how the book starts, but not till here. Not until his death do we see that truth confessed by a human being. The disciples never said it. No one that he had healed ever proclaimed it. God the Father had announced it at his baptism. The demons had shrieked it in fear, but not until here does flesh and blood actually confess it? And it's a Roman soldier. Once again, I've repeated this a few times over the course of our study. Who were the first recipients of Mark's gospel? It's not a letter, but it was written to a specific group. Roman Christians. And what did this confession assure them of? It assured them that Jesus was the Savior of all people, not just Jews. And that their message was so powerful that it could convert anyone in the empire, even the most loyal, battle-hardened soldiers. Think about it. Who would have been carrying out the persecutions of Christians in Rome? Remember Mark writes around the time of the emperor Nero. Nero was, was known far and wide for his diabolical attitude toward Christians. He was carrying out persecutions, but it was his, it was his soldiers that were doing the dirty work, they would have been carrying out on a ground level the persecutions of the Christians in Rome. So it was men like this, men like this centurion, they could actually be saved. I wonder if we still believe that the cross of Jesus Christ can save anyone. It can save anyone. Do you believe that? It absolutely can. It absolutely can, but that person, I have to tell you this, that person has to see Christ on his cross. 
because it's on the cross that God most vividly reveals himself. The cross is the truest revelation of God that we have. That clear and powerful picture of God dying, suffering on a Roman cross is what led the centurion to make this confession. Without the cross, we can look at Jesus and we can have maybe little glimpses of heaven or a slight understanding of who God is perhaps, but take the cross into full view and what you see is the Son of God. And when you see him, you either bow in worship to him or you run from him. I didn't really start reading until I was in college. Somehow I made it through junior high and high school without ever reading um, books. Cliff Notes were a good friend in those days. But in college, somehow, some way, I, I got glasses and realized that reading wasn't as much work as I thought it was and began reading books and, and started reading devotional books. And, and my favorite devotional author had become Max Lucado at the time. And um, I graduated from Lakato to other things eventually, but I remember reading this book, Six Hours, One Friday, and actually last night as I was kind of tying together the loose ends of this sermon, I hadn't picked this book up in 20 years. I went and grabbed it off the shelf because stuck in my mind was, was its closing. Had, it, had the centurion not said it, the soldiers would have. Had the centurion not said it, the rocks would have as would have the angels, the stars, even the demons, but he did say it. It fell to a nameless foreigner to state what they all knew, that surely this man was the Son of God. Six hours on one Friday. Six hours that jut up on the plain of human history like Mount Everest in a desert. Six hours that have been deciphered, dissected, and debated for 2,000 years What do these six hours signify? They claim to be the door in time through which eternity entered man's darkest caverns. They mark the moments that the navigator descended into the deepest waters to leave anchor points for his followers. What does that Friday mean? For the life blackened with failure, that Friday means forgiveness. For the heart scarred with futility, that Friday means purpose. And for the soul looking into the side of the tunnel of death, that Friday means deliverance. Six hours, one Friday. What do you do with those six hours on that Friday? This is the most important moment in the history of the world. Either you recognize it as that, and you bow to the Lord Jesus, or you discredit it and discount it altogether and worship yourself and created things. We have a Savior who died for us. We have a a, a God who died for us to be our Savior. What a Savior. Let's pray. Father, we love you. But we love you because you loved us first, and you gave us this awesome demonstration of your love. And that demonstration is the cross of Jesus Christ. We see you clearly there. We long to see you. We long to hear from you. We want a word from you. We need guidance from you. But at the cross, we see your love for us. 
It's not just a heinous death. It wasn't just a violent crime against an innocent man. It was an act of love. That's how much you loved us when we look at the cross. So God, just remind our hearts that we're a loved people. That you did not do this begrudgingly, but you did it with joy because of what it would attain for you, a people for yourself who live and exist for your glory. God, if there's anyone here that has never trust in Jesus Christ, maybe this morning they caught a glimpse of, of who He is and of Your love for them. God, I pray that they would put their trust in You. That they would be forever changed by what You did six hours, one Friday, 2,000 years ago. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.